Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series, The Ten Commandments, today with a message entitled, God in Man's Image. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I want to begin by telling the story about the late Paul Newman. Now, if you don't know who he was, Paul Newman was an actor, and and according to many women, he was a heartthrob. And so the story is told about a woman entering a Hagen Dots store in Kansas City for an ice cream cone back in 1990. And after making her selection, she turned and found herself face to face with Paul Newman. He was in town filming the movie Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. And he smiled and said hello. And Newman had brilliant blue eyes, and they were so overpowering, the woman felt her knees begin to shake. And she couldn't think of one word to say. She managed to pay for her cone, and she left the shop. She'd acted like a fool. Her heart was pounding. But she couldn't believe she had been that close to her idol. And when she finally regained her composure, she realized she didn't have her ice cream cone. She must have been so flustered she simply paid for it and left it in the store. And how embarrassing. She started back into the store just in time to meet Paul Newman leaving. He looked at her and smiled again, and then he said, Are you looking for your ice cream cone? And she simply nodded again, but she just couldn't speak. He said, Well, ma'am, you put it in your purse along with your change. (laughs) You know, all of us have heard someone who idolizes someone else. And to idolize someone is to love and to admire someone to excess. At least, that's how we use the term in our day. And we've been doing a study on the Ten Commandments, and today we're going to examine the second command. And this is the command that forbids idolatry. And because of the way we popularly use the term idol, many of us have taken from that the idea that the second command forbids us from loving something more than God. And so it's quite popular in today's usage to condemn someone for idolatry in relationship to how they feel about, you know, either an actor or an actress or how they love their car or their spouse. And it's common to hear someone say, well, that that's idolatry. That's your idol. And so it's common to speak of the idols in our hearts and warn of them. Well, that's fine. But what is it that the second commandment actually says? Well, let's read it from Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so that's the second commandment. But what is it? And how do we understand it? You know, it was Thomas Watson. He was a Puritan writer uh, writing in the 17th century. And he said, in the first commandment, worshiping a false god is forbidden. In this, however, the second commandment, worshiping the true God in a false manner is forbidden. In other words, anytime we make a representation of God, a carved image, a likeness, a picture, a statue, or any other representation of God, any time we do that, we break this command. The second commandment forbids us from representing God in a physical fashion. But why? Why is that so important? Well, J.I. Packer put it this way. 
He said, we must be clear here. Today's idea is that the great divide is between those who say, I believe in God in some sense, and those who cannot say it in any sense. Atheism is seen as an enemy. Paganism is not, and it is assumed that the difference between one faith and another is quite secondary. But in the Bible, the great divide is between those who believe in the Christian God and those who serve idols, gods, that is, whose images, whether metal or mental, do not square with the self-disclosure of the Creator. Now, by giving that quote, I'm getting ahead of myself, and you'll have noticed that Packer talks about those who have some kind of a mental depiction or a mental image of God. And that, says Packer, is idolatry as well. But again, as I've said, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's concentrate on physical things made of wood, stone, or any other thing. Why is this wrong? I mean, why does God make a law forbidding it? And by the way, some of us might be surprised by that. Many of us have never understood the difference between the first and the second command. So let's understand the difference. The nations around Israel all had idols or physical depictions of their gods and goddesses, but the prohibition against worshiping those gods and their depiction is covered in the first command, you shall have no other gods. The second command is a command against creating a depiction or representation or image of the God of Israel. That's what Packer is talking about. Packer believes that the problem the scripture addresses in the second command is the problem of those who create a picture or a likeness of God. Listen to Moses' explanation in Deuteronomy 4, 11 to 18. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure." the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Now, this is central to the second command. You know, God has no form. In other words, if you were to see God, well, there's nothing to see. And when the Bible tells us that we will see God, that remains a mystery. I mean, listen to the words of Jesus recorded in John 4, 24. God is spirit, said Jesus. You know, God is spirit means he's non-corporal. He has no body. I know that someone is going to say, well, wait a minute. You know, what about the prophet Isaiah? I mean, didn't he say, I saw the Lord? Well, yeah, in fact, Isaiah says so in Isaiah 6. But later on in John 12, 41, John the Apostle interprets that statement for us. He tells us that what Isaiah actually saw was Jesus himself. See, that's the mystery. The God who has no body, the God who has no form, the God who is not flesh would, through the second person of the Trinity, take upon himself flesh. 
See, if it were not for the Son taking on human flesh, we would have no image at all. The Son now is the image of the invisible God. Notice, God is invisible. So that's the key. If in your mind, you imagine God as a white-haired man sitting on a throne, you, sir or ma'am, you're an idolater. Whether or not you make a graven image, the idolatrous image already exists in your mind. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You must make no image. Indeed, as Packer has said, no metal or mental images of God is acceptable. Banish it from your mind. It is, according to Moses in Deuteronomy 4.16, acting corruptly. It's immoral. It's sinful. Now, I might be tempted to add other of God's attributes here, such as his omnipresence, that he is present to all spaces at all times, but I fear I might get too far afield. But at the very least, may I remind you of the Apostle Paul's words in Acts 17.28. He said of God, in him we live and move and have our being. That is to say, God is not in human form, nor is he contained in human spatial limitations. But I commend to you a thorough and biblical study of the attributes of God. God is not in physical form, and you have never been out of his presence. He is everywhere present, even though he is not seen. As Paul says of God in 1 Timothy 6.16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. You saw no form, says Moses, and therefore you shall not make any depiction of the one true God. At the very outset, it should be clear that when you make a depiction of him, you're not depicting him at all. The real problem with idolatry is that we do not want God who made us, but rather we want a God whom we have made. And once we've made God in our image, we have a God that can be controlled by human will and human manipulation. See, our great temptation is one that not only ancient Israel struggled with, but we do as well. Our temptation is that we want to create God, and then after having done that, we want to worship what our own hands and imaginations have made. Idolatry then, at its fundamental basic, is worship of self. This past month was Back to the Bible Canada's International Ministry Month. So on behalf of everyone at Back to the Bible Canada and our international partners, we want to express our appreciation for the gracious gifts that were given to sustain and grow the impact upon these global Bible teaching efforts. The international ministry programming and resources are sent to our partners every month, ensuring a consistent flow of excellence in trustworthy Bible teaching. So please continue to pray and continue to consider how you might support these international initiatives. So call today for more information on international monthly partnership or to offer your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. You will remember that shortly after Israel had received the Ten Commandments, that right in front of the sacred mountain where God had spoken, they built a golden calf. In fact, that image, that statue, was more like what they were familiar with in Egypt. And after they had collected golden earrings and golden rings and had melted them down, they then got their best craftsmen and they engraved a calf. 
Do you remember what happened next? Well, they said, here are your gods that brought you out of Egypt. In other words, they were not denying that God had devastated Egypt by 10 plagues or that he had parted the Red Sea and and brought them out. They simply made an image, a depiction of God with which they were familiar so they could see God among themselves, this depiction of God. Now, you might say, I'd never do that. But let me ask you this. Have you ever said, I like to think of God this way, and then you fill in the blanks? Hear me, if that's you in your prayer life or in your imagination, you imagine God in a way that's not spirit but is corporal, that is bodily, either in the image of a man or an animal or some physical thing, then you, my friend, you are an idolater and you're no better than Israel in front of the golden calf. You've reduced God to a level of your understanding and worshiping a God of your understanding, it's like worshiping yourself. You're worshiping your own creativity, your own imagination. You've not fallen before greatness, a greatness that staggers your imagination. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah, recorded in Isaiah 46, 5 to 9. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from a purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there, it cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. In other words, there is no likeness to me. There's no image that represents me. God is in a category by himself. There are no comparisons. You might say, well, wait a minute. Why is that so important? Why make such a federal case about this? You know, some time ago, I had a student who asked me exactly that. She said, you know, what's the harm in people conceiving of God as they want to? I mean, if it makes them happy and if they become better for it, I mean, surely God wouldn't be opposed to that. Well, yes, he would. And here's why. Look again at Exodus 20, verse 5, where it says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I know this concept is surprising to many. Isn't God love? Well, yes. But for those who live in our culture, we think of love as permissive love, love that allows us to do whatever we want. That's how so many of us understand love. But in fact, God doesn't have a love like that. Indeed, God's love is a jealous love. So what does that mean? Well, Ezekiel 39 verse 25, God is speaking and tells Israel, I will be jealous for my holy name. So what does he mean? Now, the answer seems to be that everything that God does, he does for a reason. What is his reason? Well, for instance, in Isaiah 43, verse 7, he tells us that he created us for his glory. In Psalm 25, verse 11, he tells us he redeems us and forgives us for his name's sake. Psalm 23, verse 3, he leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In 1 Samuel 12, 22, he will not forsake his people for his name's sake. In Isaiah 37, 35, he defends Jerusalem for his name's sake. In Isaiah 48, verse 9, he holds back his wrath for his name's sake. In fact, Isaiah 48, verse 11 says it so well. He says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. 
Wow. Now, please bear with me a bit longer. Have you ever wondered why it's okay for God to act this way and it's not okay for us to act this way? So, for instance, whenever we meet a human being who does everything to advance the greatness of his or her own name, who's constantly jealous for his or her own name, well, we don't think that's a good trait. We think that person, well, is a narcissist. It's always bad. So why does God say he's jealous for the sake of the greatness of his name? How can God be jealous for his own sake and glory? And, and we think, well, it's just okay, and more so, that God's jealousy is what makes us know that he loves us. See, the answer to this conundrum has everything to do with the word glory. The word glory has something to do with the worth of something. Let me tell you something about you. You don't have much glory. You don't have infinite worth. If you ceased to exist or went into eternal hell, the universe would not stagger under that load. So if you do things for the glory of your name, you're a liar, you're an egomaniac, because you are not great enough to do things for your name. But God is of infinite glory. If he ceased to exist, which, by the way, is not possible, but if he did, the universe would cease to exist, for he not only created all things, but he actively sustains or actively holds all things together, moment by moment. His splendor is ultimate. Words can't express what and who he is. His beauty is staggering. His righteousness is complete. His wrath totters the created order. He is in a category by himself. What can be compared to him? Now listen, you know, it was the great Middle Ages theologian Anselm who said, God maintains nothing with more justice than the honor of his dignity. And Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher and evangelist said, God regards himself infinitely above his regard for all other things. Theologian Daniel Fuller, who is my mentor, used to say, all God's energy and the intensity of his feeling is fully directed towards delighting in the worth of himself. Why? Because God knows, in fact, he knows this objectively. He knows it as surely as two plus two equals four, that he is worth infinitely more than the sum total of all other things. And it is not until you realize that, that you will be astounded by the thought that this altogether transcendent and holy God loves you. God is jealous, and that means at least two things. First, it means that God demands that he be worshiped. It's immoral not to worship him. To worship him is the duty of every man or woman. If you do not worship him as he truly is, you're depraved. You failed in the fundamental responsibility of what it means to be human. He demands to be worshiped because to worship him is righteous. Failure to worship him and to be thankful in his presence, failure to acknowledge him who has given you life and breath and everything else, failure to acknowledge and bend the knee is a crime, it's a sin, it's a breaking of law which is shocking and profoundly evil. But second, God's jealousy not only demands that he be worshiped, it also demands that he will not be misrepresented. And least of all, he will not countenance being represented as the depiction of something which is limited in glory. People bowing to statues is belittling because it not only defames God, it belittles the one who does it. Now, God is spirit, God is jealous, but we're not done. 
I have two issues I want to address. And the first comes from Colossians 3, verse 5. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which, says Paul, is idolatry. Now, given our definition of idolatry, why are these evil desires referred to as idolatry? And I think the answer is that covetousness is a worship of self. It is placing ourself at the center of affections. When Calvin said that the human heart is an idle factory, he meant to say that we have millions of ways of worshiping ourselves. Now, here's the the second issue. Why does God say he visits the sins of the father's idolatry to the third and fourth generation? You know, in truth, Deuteronomy 24, verse 16 says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sins. In other words, I know that the Bible says that God punishes everyone for their own sins. So what does this passage mean? It simply means that when you create an attitude of idolatry in your home, it creates an attitude of idolatry in your children. So think about it. If you create an attitude of worship in your heart and in your home, it will also have huge ramifications in the lives of your children. It is a loving thing to your children for you to worship the one true God. John, thanks so much for for your message today. You know, I get it from your message that what we're saying is we really uh, worship a God that we create for ourselves. Is that right? Yeah, that's... um You know, whether or not we make that idol so that it looks in a figure of some sort, wooden stone, which, you know, really was a part of the world of the, in which the Bible came about. I mean, everyone had these depictions of gods and goddesses, and, you know, we tend not to have that today, but it's fascinating to find out how often individuals have a profoundly unbiblical view of God, and they prefer their image of God outside of the the revelation of the one true God that we find in Scripture. And so we produce these idols, and I think it's the task of every believer to identify our erroneous depictions of God and to utterly heap scorn on them. Uh, We just simply can't live with a God that we have made. We must, in fact, put away with that God. That's what God demands of us. Thanks so much, John. And remember, to continue to join us for this series, The Ten Commandments, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. You know, some things don't mix. Oil and water, plaids and polka dots. It's not that these couplings never occur, but our minds don't really readily pair them. The same holds true with our pains and joys, both expected, but we rarely consider them as simultaneous. But God adjusts our thinking. The Bible reminds us that joy can be found in trials and our tears can be turned into laughter. It's not instant, automatic, or self-generating, but a matter of God's grace working within us, like gold refined in fire. Joy can be found in the midst of struggle. So to encourage you as our free gift this month, we want to send you a combo CD series from Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again called Joy in Tough Times. Five messages from Dr. John and five joy-filled Laugh Again episodes. Joy in Tough Times, our free gift to you 
just for calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.